Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video of the narration of the web novel Undead, taken from the website Royal Road. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 37, Deviant Now that I've discussed the standard evolutionary path of monsters, starting with lesser, standard, greater, and two elder variations of a species, we find our focus moving to deviance. For every piece of scholarship that exists on the subject of deviance, there are dozens of myths. Long have these monsters been seen as legendary, spoken of in the same breath as sovereigns and evokers. The fact of the matter is that deviants are simply variants of a more common monster species, as constrained to unnatural laws as their brethren. In truth, a deviant is not necessarily stronger than another monster of the same tier following the standard evolutionary path. A deviant's evolution occurs either as a natural reaction to a change of environment, pressure from the collective as seen in pack monsters, or rarely as a result of a monster's individual experiences. Deviants are not as rare as many believe. Some variations are well known, though they aren't recognized as deviants. One example of the environmentally pressured deviant species is the solid, a variant of the common bower. While bowers exist in all continents in most temperate climates, solids are a species specifically adapted to desert environs. Evidence of shared species between the two monster types is demonstrated by the experiment. A tier 1 OT tier bower transplanted away from its evolutionary niche. Any moderate region with a sufficient population of prey animals into the desert climate will see its next evolution transforming it into a solid. Thus, solids are regarded as a type of bower. Then the inverse is not true. The reverse of this process does not bring about the expected result. Once a solid is brought back to colder climates rather than evolve into a bower, its subsequent tears will see it remaining as a solid evolutionary path. This holds true for bowers as well as other monster species that have deviant forms. The base species can be changed, but once a deviant, always a deviant. In the space of this solid, this works against it as it is poorly equipped for cooler climates. Whatever potential the bower has in the base species to morph into the deviant is lost the instant it converts. This is similar experiments have been replicated dozens of times, Though it should be noted that a certain amount of time has to pass with the monster in its new environment before it fulfills whatever qualifications is needed for the subsequent evolution to morph it into a deviant. The exact length of time varies from different species of monsters, but the requisite time generally falls between three days and a month. Of course, if the monster fails to hunt enough prey and achieve an evolution, it'll not change into a deviant. Different types of deviants exist beyond environmentally motivated evolutions, however. The second type is more widely known, the ruler. Monster species that gather in large groups all have a potential to evolve into a ruling variant of their base species. Ruling types of humanoid monsters are called nobles, while ruling deviants of bestials will bury both terminology and morphology. These deviants come about as a result of the collective pressure system. Once large enough monster group is formed, the collective shape circling around the members of the group is forced to find an outlet. 
leading to the evolution of one or more ruling deviants to rule the others. These monsters are typically stronger than their base form and the species, even one of equivalent tier. Furthermore, their right to rule supersedes tiers. A ruling deviant of tier 4 can be seen commanding tier 5 monsters so long as the higher tiered ones belong to the base species. These ruling deviants, as well as being creatures that will prioritize the survival of the group over the all else, are thought to be more intelligent than the others of their species. These two factors are likely the reason they hold higher social position and are more powerful monsters. The third and final type of deviant is the most notorious, as well as the rarest type. These deviants have only a few reputable pieces of scholarship written on them, though this is not from lack of effort on the part of the scholarly community. These monsters are the source of the deviant title, diverging from the base race of their species in unpredictable and dangerous ways. Often their appearance is similar to the base form of their species. Large exceptions exist. They aren't necessarily stronger than the base form like ruling deviants are, though in some rare cases they are vastly superior in every aspect. The main difference between a true deviant and the base species lies in the possession of certain abilities that the basic species does not have, making any encounter with one of these monsters one that is difficult to prepare for. Thanks to this and other factors, true deviants are impossible to categorize in the same manner as environmental and rooting types. No one is certain what triggers a true deviant revolution, as they occur either seemingly at random, though it is likely that they come about as a result of the monster's individual experiences, similar to how branded may obtain rare classes after fulfilling certain requirements. Later in this book, we will explore the deviants in detail, studying various examples of legendary deviants throughout history and the abilities they possess. But for now, simply be aware of the three types. Excerpt from Forest of Claw and Fang by Tizam Mayang Vanilith saw another opening and leapt forward, sword sweeping to the rear leg of the bronze. It cut deep and the leg buckled, this was the fourth injured limb, leaving the monster without the strength left to stand. It slowly tipped to one side, flapping its wings to maintain balance, but failed and hit the ground with a pained squawk. Kalakai walked up, sticking his spear in its throat. The griffin, somehow hanging on despite the fatal wound, goggled and snapped at him. Kalakai danced back before driving his weapon into the, the second time. It fell still. No level up came this time, but he felt Kalakai and Animu growing through his connection with them, their presence swatting as the hollows inside them began to fill. Kalakai grew a little further this time, and Vanlith sensed that he had finally reached the peak of second tier. He glanced over at the spearman. If the past was any indication of the future, he would fall unconscious any second now. Currently, the ghoul was holding his spear and staring at his bloodied iron tip. His two peons had done most of the work in this battle. There wasn't much fight left in the bronze by the time Vanilith arrived. He had entered late, covering for Animu, who was acting on dis distraction for Kalakai, and as a result, seemed most of the wounds. Vanilith's own injury was slight compared to the juvenile ghoul's array of gouges and broken bones. Vanilith looked down at the light faded from the griffin's eyes, realizing a new problem at hand. With Anamu in a state and Kalakai on the verge of evolution, neither of them were any sort of shape to fight the gold. 
as if in cue, a shriek blasted across the plateau, echoing off the cliff faces until it sounded like a voices of ten griffins, rather than just one. Vanilith glanced up in time to witness a sight of Relica hurtling to the ground just before she turned into a smear on the cold stone. She twisted in midair, impossibly righting herself and landing on her feet with a resounding crack. Dust drifted around her as she stared up at the gold, which looked none the worse for wear despite the minutes-long battle that they had just taken place. Just what could be accomplished if Relica, a warrior stronger than him, couldn't land a scratch on it. But perhaps there was something. Ever since getting the first griffin, he felt something inside of him, broiling and restless, an untapped resource that was, inch by inch, awakening. He needed to settle his mind just to reach up and grasp it. Before he could do exactly that, the two remaining griffins shook off the attackers, leapt into the sky to join the gold. The first was a bronze, and the second one was smaller and darker adults. The latter sported many wounds, including a few arrows that protruded from the flank, but none of the injuries were fatal. Arumo launched a few more arrows in its direction, but the creature avoided them. The three griffins rose into the sky, gaining height until Orimo could no longer reach them. The gold surveyed the plateau, and Vanilith sensed its eyes roaming over each of the fallen griffins, seven in total. Its next cry was a burton noise, and in union, the monsters turned tail, retreating to a distant peak. Just like that, it was over. But Vanilith wasn't still. The feeling of something boiling inside of him didn't fade after the griffins' retreat. And he pursued that sensation, latching on to the threat and led him somewhere deeper. He followed this tendril deep into his core, where the miasmic cyclone endlessly swirled. The world around him seemed to darken as his mind divided. A part of him was still standing on the plateau, flanked by his two peons. But a second part of him had tunneled deep before breaking through and emerging in another place. Where had the thread taken him? He glanced around, finding itself once again in the realms of spirits, in that reverse world of black and white and countless greys. It was quieter, and it had been the last time he visited. No ghosts muttered, no dead men stood nearby, blaming him for their deaths. His feet found purchase on a smooth rock, and after gaining his bearing, he strode towards the translucent griffin that had curled up on the ground in some distance away. As he approached, the creature climbed to his feet, but otherwise was completely still, even when Vanlith was a mere feet away. Its gaze placidly rested on him, pale eyes betraying no hint of emotion. The spirit of the bronze he killed bore no signs of injuries in this world, though it occasionally flickered, wounds appearing and disappearing quicker than he could blink. The injuries were all ones that he had inflicted on it himself, some of the humans he had killed bore their death wounds with them to the grave, unchanging scars in their spiritual psyche. But not this creature. This griffin's death was dramatic, but not so much that it defined what this monster was. Still, the memory of its death was present, judging by the persistent flickering of its body. Vanilith wasn't sure how he knew all of these things. The knowledge simply came to him as easily as breathing. He could see that the griffin accepted its death, again in stark contrast to most of the humans he had ended. Standing so near to it, Vanilith was able to get a sense of just how large it was. In the heat of the recent fight, he'd been more concerned with survival than study. 
He was tall himself, but he barely reached the neck of the beast. He was forced to crane his head up to meet its eyes. He reached out with a hand, and the spirit moved at last, stepping back and unfolding its wings as if it meant to take off into the sky. Stop! It stopped, which surprised the white. He hadn't truly expected it to listen. Follow me, he said. The griffin ruffled its feathers before laying back down and what seemed a clear refusal. Vanilith inspected it for a time longer. Why listen to one demand and ignore the other? He tried a couple other commands before concluding that the different approach was needed. He spent some time wandering the ghostly realm while his body in the real world was approached by Relica. She looked exhausted, but the worst that she had suffered was a few scratches. She maintained her warrior's bearing as she glanced over the three of them. By now, Kalakai had begun his evolution and was lying comatose on the ground. She posed her lips as she inspected Vandalith and Anamu, pulling out a pouch from the satchel on her waist. This is the last of the dust, she said as she rubbed a handful of powder into Vandalith's shoulder. So, do try to not get so heavily injured after this. She moved to Anamu, applying the last regs of the substance on the ghoul. Will they return? Vanilith asked, nodding his head in the direction of the griffins. Likely not, replied the necromancer. Griffins may not be that smart, but they know a losing fight when they see it. Killing those bronzers sent a deviant a message. The reward isn't worth the cost for him. Well done. She strode off, seeing the post-battle arrangements. The next several minutes were spent sorting the corpses, both theirs and those of the griffins. Relica allocated the bodies in poor condition as food for our undead, though she ensured that the two bronzes, as well as the two of the unevolved griffins, were preserved whole. The ghouls well upon the monster flesh was something approaching glee. Vadalith joined them, somewhat more reservedly. He didn't need to eat the flesh of his enemies to gain strength like the unbranded ghouls did, but he still required nourishment. As he ate, he continued his negotiations with the spirit of the griffin. Don't you wish to hunt? To fly? The griffin snorted. It hadn't been dead long. Perhaps given enough time, it would come to miss the experience of life. But if he left this place now, he felt that it would be a show of weakness. A weakness wasn't tolerated in the world of monsters. There had to be something he could use. He followed the griffin's gaze as it settled on the point in the distance. There was something over there, a sight Vandalith hadn't seen before. He first saw it as a shimmer in the air, much like the heat waves coming off the ground. It wasn't an illusion, but a figure. As he approached, he began to pick out individual features. It was another griffin spirit, but this one was far fainter than the first. That's why he didn't sense it earlier. It was the other bronze, the one Kalakai killed. This griffin stood in place, unmoving, eyes vacant and unexfocused. Like the first, it flickered, occasionally revealing the wounds that had been inflicted by Kalakai's spear. But this one was different. He reached out a hand and it didn't react. When he touched it, he felt a tiny spark leap between his fingers and the griffin. He shivered as a connection formed. There was a tiny mental struggle that couldn't be called a fight. The resistance ended before he was fully aware of it. He instinctively understood that the spirit was under his control, but it was weak, painfully faint, and it felt like a leaf blown in the wind. The creature hadn't been completely realized in this place. Only a tiny piece of it made it here. Not enough of it existed to possess a will of its own, so it was just fragments of experience, a static image overlaid in a dead world. 
He knew why it had happened. He hadn't killed this griffin. He had contributed to its death. His claim on it was a weakness than otherwise would have been. He controlled it, but there was little he could do with such a faint spirit. He turned back to see the other griffin had plodded nearer, closing the gap between them. It examined the echo of his comrade in an inexplicable sadness in his eyes. Does it pain you to see your friend here? he asked. He hadn't meant to speak. He'd clearly forgotten that this was a strange world, though it rose up to his lips unbidden. He steadied his mind, determined for it to not happen again. As he did, he realized that something was a little off with the question. The word friend didn't fit. The monsters did not have friends. Neither did Griffin's. He focused on the thin tether between him and the spirit, trying to extract any information he could from the faint presence. Ah, you do not wish to see your nest mate like this. The female griffin, a substantial spirit, lowered her head. Spirit speech shattered whatever language barrier existed between them before. I can set him free. She glanced up, more sharply than expected. Impressive, he thought, that a dead creature could be moved by emotion. There is no need for him to suffer like this, he continued. I'll perform this as a favor for you. Accept my rule, and I swear he will be liberated. Vanlith knew that she would accept his offer, though he could only glean fragments of personality from the faint spirit he had just dominated. He knew their honor made these creatures predictable. It made them strong too, but predictable. The griffin didn't take long to... She strode forward, pressing her head against the dat of the other griffin roughly, though it looked at first like a more substantial spirit would phase right through the ephemeral form of her mate. They interacted as two solid beings. The female rubbed her neck against her mate like a cat might, before turning and placing up to Vanilith. The male hadn't reacted to the gesture, but continued to stare at nothing. He held out his hand forward, and the spirit was standing before him. This time, she allowed him to touch her feathery mane. When Vanlith pressed his palm into the griffin's feathers, it was a wholly different experience than with the male. He immediately knew that conquering the spirit was a force was impossible. He could sense her mind, strong and steady as the mountain she could once called home. She was no more powerful than Vanlith, but successfully subverting a spirit required the dominate to have a far greater force than the target. Strength of spirit was what Orimo had called a phenomenon, which he thought was a good way of thinking about it. It wasn't mere willpower. It was existence itself, the spirit and mind as a collective. For the third time, Vanlith found his knowledge coming to him without prompting, as if he'd always known these things. But how had he learned to control spirits? This couldn't be from memories of his previous life. Rather, it was something else, an inherent skill. It was a little like instinct, though instinct didn't come in the form of knowledge. The mountain's presence of the griffin stepped aside as Vanilith's world encroached on her domain. This was to be different from the agreement with Orimo. This spirit wasn't a teacher or even his comrade. It was a slave. Pact successful. Vanilith flinched as the voiceless words pulsed around him. His eyes fixed skyward where he saw a galactic, unblinking eye of the dread sovereign. Chromatic whirl of the seam to consume the sky, aiming with all the colors this world did not, was the same as before. He steeled himself as recollections of the unnatural, mind-shattering terror brushed at the edges of his consciousness. 
Nothing more came, however. No other words were spoken. No enigmatic wriggles or sensations followed the announcement of the pack's completion. The great eye seemed inert, as if the owner was asleep. But even asleep, the eye did not close. He turned to his griffin spirit. The pact was complete, but it could still be ended if he did not complete his part. He may not know how he knew these things, but that didn't mean that he would question his knowledge. It felt right, listening to these instincts. In the physical world, he finished his meal and watched as the ghouls, at least those who still hadn't fallen into evolution coma after eating the griffin's flesh, gathered up all the bodies that they could carry. Though Redeka seemed to think that they were safe, Aromo wasn't certain. He thought that the gold might return. According to him, there could be up to a dozen griffins that hadn't accompanied the main force today. And though they were likely all unevolved tier 2 threats, if they returned with the gold and the remaining bronze at their head, the fight would go poorly. As a result of the urging, the ghouls were now getting ready to move with all the food that they could bear. They lost nearly 50 ghouls in the fight, and though many others were evolving, their overall numbers were reduced greatly. At the same time, a third of their forces, 40 so, were now evolved, while only 90 remained lesser ghouls. In addition, Relica seemed to have plans for the four griffin bodies that she had preserved, so Vandaleth expected any decline would be short-lived. Back in the spiritual world, his hand passed through the misty form of the male griffin, which began to dissipate as two monsters watched on. His physical self exhaled. He felt something leaving him, passing from his core to his lungs. From there, it was into the surrounding air. A pale, shimmering mist issued from his mouth, quickly fading away. He was left feeling slightly emptier. Then he paused. Something within him seemed unexpectedly changed recently, growing without his realization. The system hadn't notified him of any growth. What was different then? Something that wasn't quantifiable. Perhaps, or, um, he pulled up his status menu out the thought, scanning it for something. Under his innate abilities, he found what he was looking for. Rule of the Grave, Level 2. The ability was listed as Level 1 before. It increased without any notification. Was this because it was innate? What was the difference between a normal and innate skills, anyway? The Rule of the Grave was clearly related to spirits and packs he formed with them. Right now, he could feel the presence of the griffin spirit inside him, clearer than ever before. But how did he use it? Would he need Radica's aid, having her raise the griffin like she did Orimo? A noise pulled Vanilus from his deliberations. Kalakai, a newly evolved spear ghoul, rose to his feet. Kalakai's pale grey skin was stretched tightly across his lean muscles, which almost made him seem younger. Though the narrow white beard that stretched to his chest arrested that notion, he returned Vandalith's look standing solemnly with a spear at his side. He was now tier three, a great ghoul, much like Animu and Arimo. Vandalith felt that perhaps he might begin to expect things from this peon of his. End of chapter. Chapter 38 The Five Colored Watcher. Oath 27. The demi-shamans, whether they serve as undertakers or birth matrons, serve as a vital points of union in the Great Pact. Their status must be monitored at all times, which will be achieved by having each shaman imprint one clay tablet which is stored in the Chamber of Oaths. This is to be done the same day as they join our ranks. 
The shaman, overseeing the imprinting ritual, must be ranked as a third or higher and be learned in the rites of binding. The ritual in question is a mirror rebound second rank. If any of the demi-shamans is injured severely, their corresponding tablet will crack. If they die, the tablet will shatter. This allows us to quickly react, replenishing regions where the previous demi-shaman has died or is aiding, making any interruptions to the pact brief at worst. 27. Addendum 1. Any disruption to the pact cannot be allowed to last more than a month. See Oath 43 for the rules governing distribution of nodal villages. A journey by foot between the most remote villages on the enclave should take no longer than 28 days. Addendum scribed by Nilatani, 18th Arc Shaman of the Enclave. Excerpt from the Earth's original author unknown. The distinct howl indicated break in the journey. Kai unfurled a rope and flung it over a branch, hauling his pack into a tree. Lei's pack followed after, and then the two of them went up. The motions were practice, as was the fourth time that they'd heard jaws in the region had been forced to take impromptu breaks. Kai fished out a piece of hardtack from his pack. After a few seconds of exertion, he snapped it in half, offering a piece to lay. She accepted, gnawing on the rock-like substance in an effort to distract herself from the idea of a hungry monster prowling just beyond her sight. Lei and her guide hadn't stopped by any villages during their journey. There was no settlements along the route where they were taking unless they wanted to spend a day hiking out of their way. Neither Kai nor Lei suggested such a course of action. Kai was used to the wilderness, and though Lei would have killed for some enmities like civilization offered, she knew how important it was to reach the enclave quickly. She could manage a little discomfort. She thought about warning the villagers they passed by about the undead, but the enclave could inform everyone far more quickly than two of them could manage. They had armies of messengers and... Uh, well, an actual army. Kai suddenly froze, and Lei's warning instincts fled up to life. She turned her head in the direction that he was looking and saw something moving. Immediately, fright seized her like a cold hand squeezing her heart. She had been more composed. She would have realized that the movement came from along the path and that the crunching steps are caused by footed feet, not paws. When the first person rounded the bend, Lei had a moment to process the human shape. Instead of reassuring her, this only served to increase her panic. She saw not a person, but an undead, a monster wearing a human shape, with yellow eyes and teeth and rent flesh, apparitions of violence flashed before her eyes. And before she could compose herself, a partly eaten biscuit flew from her hand, smacking the forehead of the leading figure, who let out a surprising grunt, stumbling backwards. It was an impressive shot, Bol told. Skill obtained, throwing level one. She nearly choked when the glowing words appeared before her. Having learned to read from her father, she was able to decipher their meaning after the confused moment, but that was the least of her worries. Ow! Blasted! What's this? Heart attack! Spoke the man she had pelted. What the? Where? Who in the father forsaken land just threw a biscuit at me? Man, really, only a teenager, just a few years older than her, rubbed his forehead with one hand while he held Lay's discarded meal with the other, scrutinizing the surroundings for the mystery bombardier. Lay observed his headdress, noting that the coloration, he was a red-feathered hunter, the same rank as Kai. Kai called out, only a little delayed, Um, greetings, hunter. You, 
said the man, homing in on him. Then he saw Lay's outstretched arm-throwing position. She'd forgotten to retract it. Sheepishly, she lowered it, glancing away she did. The hunter's eyes narrowed. The kid, what were you think? Someone placed a hand on the man's shoulder, and he instantly quieted. The figure stepped forward, another hunter in full dress. But his bonnet lay counted the feathers he bore, and her eyes widened. He had not one or two, not even three or four, but five types of feathers. Her jaw fell slack seeing the white and brown feathers in addition to the more ordinary red, orange, and yellow. This person outranked even her father, who had only ever attained four colors. This man before her was a branded and a powerful one at that. What was he doing out here, away from the enclave? Hunting monsters, why travel with the red-feathered hunter then? Greetings, hunter, said the man to Kai. His voice was deep, calm, and steady. Like a mountain's breath, he scanned the two of them with a quick, perceptive eye. Are you on your charge heading to the enclave? Selection season has ended, I'm afraid. The learned ones are not accepting any students until next year. This hunter was a middling height of build, with a characteristic pale hair, even paler complexion, and dark eyes commonplace to the children of the mountain. He appeared younger than her father, though his exact age was impossible to pinpoint. He might have been twenty or fifty. Other than that, there was nothing particularly notable about his appearance, save for a single thin scar that traced the line across his chin and up his jaw. We aren't traveling for a schooling, sir. Call me Palani, he interjected. Palani, sir, amended Kai. We bring news, terrible news that needs to be heard by the chief as soon as possible. The man furrowed his brow and lay caught him with a quick glance over his shoulder. He stared upon the third figure standing there, completely motionless and half obscured by some low-lying branches. She would not have seen him if not for Palani's look. This news wouldn't happen to be from the cradle, would you? he asked. Kai blinked. Yes, that is where we're from. Palani nodded. I thought it was unnatural. No, never mind. Please, would you come down and share your story with us? The two of them climbed down, lay enduring the mistrustful stare of the hunter she clobbered earlier with the impromptu weapon, and whose forehead now bore the faint red bruise. The group gathered around, though she noted, though she noted that the third member of the strange group stayed back, having elected not to join the rest of them. He was clad in a brown robe, his features obscured by a hooded cloak. He appeared to be inspecting her. Lay recalled her secret with a sudden chill that discreetly turned, checking on the bandage that she wrapped around her hand. It was still in place. The brand was still hidden. She glanced at Kai, aware with sudden clarity that she was completely at his mercy. She warned him not to tell anyone of her brand, but would he keep his word? Now, Palani said, I imagine some great hardship has befallen the two of you. Otherwise, this child would not have been driven to such an extreme action as pelting my apprentice with her rations. Thing could have killed me, mumbled the victim in question. At least that explained why the five-colored hunter traveled with the one color. Palani had taken on an apprentice, something many hunters did when they got older. Perhaps this man was closer to her father's age than she thought. Lay bowed her head apologetically to the young man, receiving a grunt in reply. The teenager had squinting eyes and a large hooked nose that made him look remarkably like a vulture. His gaunt appearance didn't help much to dispel that image. The two hunters settled in as Kai began retelling his tale, though Lay found it difficult to get comfortable. Her hand itched, though it she tried to taking her mind off of it. 
and was it her imagination or were the howls getting louder? The telling didn't take long, and the somber mood lay over the surrounding by the time Kai was done. Who could have expected, began the red-feathered hunter, before training off into silence. When he looked at Lei again, he no longer appeared so bitter. So you are a child of Arimo, the Polani, regarding Lei with tired eyes. I'm sorry to hear about your home, and especially your father. This news is a blow to all who knew him. It's a blow to all of your rung. He turned to Kai next. You've performed a great service. It would not have been easy to leave your comrades and family, but you did well in heeding your hunt leader's final orders. This information you carry with you is for great import. Kai bit his lip, nodding. Pilani sighed. Cohen, Lyko, there has been a change of plans. We'll be returning with these two to the enclave at once. The hooded man finally stepped forward. When he spoke, his voice was thin and raspy. This is only to be expected. Such a tragedy. It seems taking up my post will be more difficult than first thought. Thank you for your services thus far, Hunter. I shall impose on you again for the return journey. Bellani nodded. Then, upon seeing Lei and Kyle's look, he gave a brief explanation. His name is Lyko, and I was tasked with escorting him to the mountain's cradle to take place of your previous undertaker. You could say that encountering you saved us much time, though little grief. Lei looked at the man, Lyko, over. Despite so many other things going on, she found herself interested in him. She had never seen the cradle's previous undertaker. Those who acted as arbiters to the griffins were people shrouded in secrecy, similar to the shamans of the enclave. From what she heard, the birth matrons and the undertakers of the villages were the same. The common consensus was that these people were magical, possibly even branded, but rumors thrived on mystery. Many other fantastical stories had circulated amongst the villagers of the Yayo as the former undertaker's identity. Undertakers and birth matrons might perform a vital role in each settlement, but they never lived amongst the people. This isolation, coupled with their curious job, the specifics of which no one was told, gave them an outsider-like atmosphere. Sometimes they didn't even seem entirely human. Wait, Polani mentioned that Lyco was meant to replace the cradle's undertaker. Why did their undertaker need replacing? Had something happened to him before the undead outbreak? She wanted to ask, but in front of all these adults she found it difficult to speak up. We should depart immediately, said Pilani. If we keep up a good pace, we can make it back in three days' time. He quickly organized a new marching order. Gion the hunter, who had wrapped a bandage around his head, completely unnecessarily, thought Lei, took the lead, with Kai behind him. Then it was Lei and Lyko, with Pilani bringing up the rear. It seemed the brand had liked to watch over his charges from the back. He was probably giving his apprentice experience in leading. Lai glanced over her shoulder at Lyko, but with his hood up, she was unable to see past the man's chin and mouth. His jaw was clean-shaven and appeared remarkably young, not at all what she expected after hearing his voice. A howl broke through the trees, far closer than any of the others. It sounded like whatever had made the noise was only feet away. Lai's teeth working over practically stubborn piece of hardtack, but her tongue at the sound. They were upon them. Blinking back tears of pain, she ran to the nearest tree, scrambling to a low-lying branch and hoisting herself up. After she climbed to the third branch, she spared a moment to observe the surroundings. No one had imitated her. Instead, the other three had backed up and standing behind Polani. Kai glanced over to her, a wry smile on his lips. 
Lay, it's fine. There's no danger. Though he said that, Kai's eyes darted nervously to the hunter in front of him. Polani's expression was unreadable, but he stood at the ease peering into the forest. Shortly afterwards, a squat, quadrupedal animal with brown fur emerged from the vegetation, followed by another two of the creature. They were roughly the height of goats, but far thicker, particularly around the limbs. They had no neck to speak of. It seemed almost like their large heads were bolted directly onto their torso. Cruel fangs jutted out from wolf-like mouths, from which hung strands of drool. Jaws. The griffinless region, these monsters ruled the forest. Their appearance made them seem almost foolish, but underestimating the creatures was a mistake made only once. Jaws were far deadlier than normal predators, and those were already deadly enough. Arimo had been sure to draw that lesson, along with plenty others, into her head. Respect and fear. Li Joa took a step forward in the same time Polani did. It was all. Lei couldn't see Polani's face, so she couldn't tell what he did, but in the next instant, the Jawa let out a startled yelp and immediately turned tail, fleeing without delay. The packmates followed shortly afterwards, tail between their legs. A series of high-pitched yelps gradually faded into the distance as the monsters sprinted away. Lei heard a noise. Kion, the apprentice, had turned his head, clearly trying to stifle laughter. Judging by his shaking shoulders, he did a poor job of it. Kai followed suit, chuckling more modestly, though he shut up when he saw the look in Lai's eyes. She didn't find the situation funny. Palani approached the tree and raised a hand, which she accepted graciously, or tried to, but she had never been helped off of anything before and realized belatedly that leaping off the tree with her full body weight probably hadn't been the right move. Polani's eyes widened, but he caught her, placing her down safely. At least, he didn't laugh. Of course, there hadn't been any danger. The man was a five-feathered. She'd forgotten so quickly. After she was down, he asked her a question. Have you seen a Jawa before? No, she said, wincing at how the word came out of his sore tongue. In many places of the world, they are brutish monsters, having been known to stalk and even kill hunters. As he spoke, he reorganized the line and began moving. This close to the enclave, however, they are more docile, warier of humans. If you are prepared, you can still scare them away. It doesn't even take a hunter like me to do it. Grab a branch or two, wave them around, make a loud noise, and they usually run right off. Fireworks well, too. I remember, this approach is only for small packs. If there are six or more of the beasts, it is best to find high ground as you did. And if you are much further from the enclave, well, there are more determined out there in wild places of the world. You didn't do any of that, noted Lay. They were scared of you, and you didn't even shout. Balani smiled. Just a small trick they teach you when you earn your fourth feather. Lay was silent for a moment, considering the encounter. If it was him, it should have been easy. Why didn't you kill them? I'd rather not have to, said Polani. They are certainly monsters, but they serve a vital role in the forest by keeping the population of prey animals down. Wolves and big cats do this elsewhere in the mountains, but this far west, only monsters like Jawas can survive. The balance is a curious thing. I often find it best to approach it maintaining with no approach at all. I see. This was just like the things her father would talk about. 
Hearing Palani speak reminded her of the starlit nights spent sitting around the hearth and center of Yayo. Murmurs and chuckles of the villagers blending into pleasant background buzz. Arimo would be right beside her, his voice soft yet clearly audible, relating his experience out in the world. If not that, it was in some other story he had heard. He never edited, never lied, and never exaggerated. Sometimes others would gather when he spoke of monsters and legendary hunters of old. It often seemed like half the village materialized around him. But she didn't care what he spoke about. She just liked to listen. It was like she became something else when he spoke. Something other than lay the village girl. She saw herself in those woods, a bow slung across her back, reading the tracks of a monster that she'd been stalking for days, valley after valley. Lay stumbled over a root. The reality came crashing down around her in a flood of sensation. Her legs ached, sore from days of walking. Her tongue hurt, and she just knew that she would bite it again once she started to swell. Her arms were scraped red by the branches and the trees that she'd climbed to hastily. Her stomach was a knot of pain from eating nothing but dense hardtack for a week. And beyond all of that, her father was dead. He was dead. End of chapter. And that, my friends, is the end of this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the channel. There are numerous links down below. The easiest way would be to share this video and this channel to as many people as possible to help this channel grow. Your support is very much appreciated. And I will see you all in the next video. Cheers.